welcome to worship today. I have a friend whose name is Dr. Alex McFarlane. He used to be president of Southern Evangelical Seminary in uh, North Carolina and uh, is a prolific writer and a wonderful apologist for the Christian faith. In his book called Stand Strong in College, Alex writes the following, I often speak on college campuses on the reality of God and the existence of truth. One day, after one of my presentations, a professor said, there's no such thing as truth. Now, this was during a question and answer session, but the truth is that this professor had no questions. He wanted to rant. God isn't real. Truth does not exist. Religion is a crutch. It's all a fake and a fraud. When the professor was finished, I let a pregnant pause fill the auditorium and then ask this simple question. Are you sure? That simple question exposes the logical fallacies and contradictions of his position. Think about it. If he is sure that there is no such thing as truth, doesn't that idea become the new truth? If he is consistent to his own statement, he can't say that he is sure there is no such thing as truth. Such confidence would contradict his own assertion that there is no truth. And that is really my point. Truth exists. This is an unavoidable conclusion. Even if you say truth does not exist, that statement itself claims to be truth. So the real question is not, does truth exist? Rather, the real question is, what is truth and how can we know it? Because if there is no truth, who is to determine what is right and what is wrong? And that's a good question, isn't it? In fact, I think a lot of people today in our world are, are asking, is there truth? And who is to determine what is right and wrong? That's being asked, I believe, by a lot of business people uh, who have insider information and wonder about the morality of it all. It's being asked by couples who want to take sexual intimacy on a test drive before any sort of commitment to marriage. It's being asked by preachers who wonder, is the Bible really the Word of God or is it a book just like any other? It's being asked by sharp, young professionals in all kinds of fields who wonder, is the so-called American dream worthy of me giving my whole life and allegiance to or is there something nobler that could demand all of my dedication. That question is being asked by school teachers who are given textbooks that have altered the facts, honestly, and have totally rewritten God out of his story. It's being questioned by teenagers who wonder what in the world could possibly be wrong with sex before marriage uh, since we love one another. It's being asked by young women who are considering abortion and by elderly people who face illness and a potentially painful process of dying. What is truth and how can we know it? 
You see, we begin a three-part series today where we look at what makes a church special. And the first thing I want us to look at is that the church is special because it's a place where truth is proclaimed. In just a moment, in fact, uh, we're going to begin reading in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to ask you to open your Bible there if you have one. And uh, we're going to look at this launching of the first church in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to understand this. You don't read the Bible very long until you run right into the idea of truth. God is seen as the God of truth. Jesus Christ came full of grace and truth. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. The Bible is the word of truth. And what we're told in Scripture is that although all these things are true, that there will be many scoffers and unbelievers who don't want to embrace that. That's what it says. It says they will suppress the truth, deny the truth, exchange the truth of God for a lie. In the last days, it says, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So we need to be aware of that. So what are we to do as a church? According to the Bible, we're to love the truth. We're to be sanctified by the truth. We're to walk in truth. We're to rightly divide the word of truth. And on and on scripture goes. What you see quickly as you open the Bible is that it's obvious that God places tremendous value on truth. So let's dive in today and look at the proclamation of truth in the very first day of the very first church. It is what we're going to see is it's one of the things that mark the church as being very special. And by the way, it's just appropriate that we look at this text today because this is the weekend that we launch our Greenbush campus. Pastor Greg Ballard and all of his staff and volunteer leader team, teams, they're all ready. The excitement is through the roof. We've been praying like mad. We've been asking God to do something amazing on that side of the river. And the time is now. And this weekend is the launching of that. It's kind of exciting that we get to talk about this passage because it's all about the launching of the very first church. So with that said... Let's jump right in and get started. I want you to see, first of all, that the truth, the church is a place where the truth is told about us, where the truth is told about us. Look with me at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, that place was an upper room where they had been gathered for 10 days praying. <clears throat> and they, the they there refers to 120 followers of Jesus. I wish we knew all of their names. There were, of course, the 11 original apostles, minus Judas Iscariot, who had betrayed Christ and gone on to kill himself. Uh, there was Mary, the mother of Jesus, we're told in Acts 1. She was there, faithfully gathered, waiting for what the Lord had promised would come this endowment with power from on high. 
And uh, there was probably Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the close friends of Jesus. There were a number of other people I'm sure that he had healed or raised from the dead or encountered in his ministry. I wish we knew who they all were. But you see, they had been through a roller coaster in the last couple of months. They had seen Jesus crucified, and that had devastated them. They saw him three days later raised from the dead, and that had elated them. And then for 40 days, he made various appearances to them. And then on Ascension Day, they had seen Jesus literally levitate off the ground and rise and ascend into heaven to the right hand of God the Father. An angel said to them while they were staring at him, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing into the heavens? This same Jesus that you've seen go from you into heaven is going to come back in just the same way. And so they quickly went to Jerusalem. They gathered just as Jesus had instructed them to do. And now for 10 days they had been praying and waiting. And what we're about to read in verse 2 was the most powerful, life-changing day of their entire lives. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Just as Moses in the Old Testament had seen a burning bush that was ablaze and yet it was not consumed, similarly these tongues of fire rested on their heads. They became something akin to human candles it seems and yet there was no destruction. It was obvious that this was a supernatural work of Almighty God. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, verse 5 reads, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. By the way, the day of Pentecost, that's what this Jewish festival day was called. It was something akin to the opening of racetrack season in Saratoga Springs. I mean, there was a lot of excitement and pomp and circumstance and people came from all over the world to be a part of this experience. That's what Pentecost was like. Verse 6 says, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? They were astounded that these local yokels from Galilee could fluently speak their own languages with apparently no accent. They were mesmerized, amazed. They were left speechless in wonderment as they saw this spectacle. Down in verse 12, we read, amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. (laughs) Are they drugged? Are they drunk? Are they just a couple of fries short of a happy meal? I mean, what are we to make of this spectacle? We've never seen anything like this 
before. Verse 14 says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Peter's going, look, this is illogical. Now, maybe, maybe an alcoholic would still be drunk at nine or about to get start getting drunk, but, but this is unreasonable. You can see these men are sober. This is a supernatural act of God. He says, no, verse 16, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. For those of you who may be new to the Bible, Joel is is actually a, a book in the Old Testament. You can, on your own time, go there and read that. And you'll read that hundreds of years before this came about, Joel had prophesied the very thing that was now taking place. By the way, just a little side note. One of the reasons that I just continually am amazed at the Scriptures is that the prophecies there are so astounding. Some of them are still yet to come true, but as in this case, a number of them uh, have already been fulfilled in history. And it's just truly amazing to see how accurate Scripture is. And, And God's hand and fingerprints all over that, because who could have ever predicted this? And yet Joel the prophet was inspired by God to say this very thing. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And what we see here is that the church was a very special place when the people were honest, when they were authentic about who they were, and they were just being who God made them to be. And the same is true today. Friends, I want you to know that the church is a very special place, but it's not because Christians are smarter than everybody else. Don't get me wrong. There's some brilliant people that are a part of this church and other churches. But that's not the thing that makes a church special. Nor is it because, this will shock some of you, because we're morally better than other people. Well, I hope we're getting better. I hope we're better followers of God today than we were a year ago. But but let's be honest, there are a lot of outstanding people morally that are not Christians. That's for certain. The thing that really sets us apart is the message. The message. I worked for a number of years for Billy Graham. And Billy today is still alive. He's in his 90s. But even back in the years when I was with the team, he was already an elderly man. And so every city we went to, they called it the last crusade. Now, we weren't calling it that. We, we weren't trying to deceive people or dupe people. But all the local people said, well, he'll never be through here again. Not in his lifetime. This is never going to happen again. This could be the last crusade. And so that buzz went throughout the whole region. But because it was possibly the last, reporters would come from all over the world to interview Billy Graham and to write stories about what they experienced. And and it was uncanny how common the reports were. I mean, I could almost write their reports for them before they wrote them. They would say things something like this. Well, it's not the most intelligent 
presentation we've ever heard. There are people who are much more erudite. Uh, He's not the greatest orator. There, There are people who are much better speakers. But there's something about about the simple and genuine authenticity of Billy Graham. He's never had a moral scandal. He's respected by everyone around the world. There's something about that that is so winsome that when he says God loves you, when he says come and receive Jesus Christ, it's a powerful thing. You know what? Those reporters were only half right. Yeah, all that stuff's true. But what they often missed was it, it's not the person of Billy Graham where the power was. It's in the message. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that's what we need to understand about the local church. If you're here this weekend checking out church, or as I like to say, window shopping Christianity, I'm so glad... I hope you'll continue your quest. I hope you continue to explore Christ and seek for the truth, capital T. But I want you to understand something. The most common statement I've heard through over 20 years now about people just like you who once explored and who then decided to plant their lives and invest in this church, here's the most common thing I've heard. I came expecting to find religious phonies. I came expecting... That there'd be a lot of people playing church and going through the motions. I've been amazed as I've gotten to know some people how genuine they are. How honest. And what you see is what you get. I've not found very many phonies. You'd be amazed if you knew how many times I've heard people say that. But it's the message This is a place where truth is proclaimed about us, that we're nothing special. It's the message, the truth of God, that makes the church special. But secondly, I want you to see here that the church is also special because it's a place where the truth is told about Jesus. Let's read on in verse 22. Men of Nazareth, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God to you, By miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Peter is trying to really press upon them the identity of Christ, who he is. Because identity is important. Do you know who Christ is? Do you know who you are? Back when George Bush Sr. was president and was running for re-election, he he knew he was going to need all the votes he could get. And uh, he was campaigning everywhere, he would, and, and he went into a nursing home uh, one day, and he was shaking hands, and he walked up to an elderly lady, and he said, well, hello there, ma'am, what is your name? She said, my name is Mary. He said, well, hi there, Mary, good to meet you. Do you know who I am? She said, no, but if you go to the front desk, they'll be able to tell you, all right? <laughs> Identity, <laughs> identity is very, very important. And that's what Peter is trying to establish here. Now, if I stood up here today and I said, I am God in the flesh. Before Abraham Lincoln was, I am. 
Come to me and I can heal you. I can change your life. I can forgive your sins and adopt you into my family. And I'll actually begin to change you from the inside out. You would say, Keener, you're a lunatic. And you'd be right. And I sure would hope you wouldn't believe that craziness. And yet, amazingly, Jesus said things just like that. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. He claimed to be able to forgive sins. And yet the difference was he backed it up. That's why Peter said, He was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. God validated Jesus' identity through all the marvelous things that he did through him. And then he says in verse 23, as Peter continues to proclaim this truth, he says, this man was handed over to God, over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, boy, that's not a very seeker-sensitive message. Would you agree? I mean, Peter's just kind of in their face. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. He's being very blunt. A preacher told about befriending a brilliant lawyer who was an agnostic. And he tried to share uh, Christ with him. And so, and finally, the man agreed to come to church and listen to him preach. And the man arrived late, so in, uh, all the back seats were full, and Usher ushered this lawyer right down to the front, set him on the third row, just happened to seat him beside a young man who was mentally disabled. And during the service, the pastor noticed that during the invitation time at the end where he was inviting people to come to pray and receive Christ and so on, he noticed that the young man and the uh, lawyer were whispering to one another, and then the lawyer just abruptly turned and kind of stomped out of church. The pastor was so disappointed because he had prayed so much and worked so hard to try to get him there. He was sad that something had obviously gone wrong. But the next Sunday, the lawyer came back. And during invitation time, he came forward to receive Christ. And the pastor asked him later, what happened? He said, why did you come back? He said, well, pastor, I hate to disappoint you, but it it really wasn't anything you said. He said, last week, that man I was beside during the invitation time, he said he turned to me and he asked me a question. He said, do you want to go to heaven when you die? And I was honestly offended by that question. He just put me on the spot like that. And so I said, no. And the young man said, well, go to hell then. He said, I couldn't get that off my mind all week. I've been thinking about that. And so I decided now's the time. I came back. Well, that's about how blunt Peter is being here. But I want you to notice something special. He says here in verse 23 that Jesus' death was according to God's set purpose and foreknowledge. It's important we understand in this message of truth that Jesus' death was not some cosmic accident. His blood wasn't spilt by accident. It was poured out intentionally. This was God's plan from the beginning. That's why 
It says in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus died for us. He died an atoning death. And Peter is confronting this crowd with that message. He goes on in verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. If I said to you today that Nelson Mandela has come back from the grave, you would laugh me off the stage. It happened less than two months ago. You know that you can go to his grave today. But when Peter said that Jesus was raised from the dead, and he was making this statement some 50 days roughly after Jesus had been crucified, nobody laughed. You know why? Because they knew the tomb was empty. They knew all they had to do was walk across town over to that place of those tombs, and they knew his body was not there. Nobody laughed. They knew the truth was being spoken. It was something they could not explain. And down in verse 33, Peter says, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And then verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So let me ask you, is there such a thing as truth? And who has a right to determine that? I tell you that Jesus Christ, the risen one, the exalted one, is the standard of truth. And I say to you personally, wherever you are on this spiritual journey, that you cannot go wrong if you look to Jesus as your standard of truth. You may be asking yourself, can I really believe the Bible, Pastor? Or is it just a book full of weird stories that aren't really true? Jesus said, sanctify them in your truth. Thy word is truth. You may be wondering, can can I really believe that I'm divinely created by God's divine design? Or am I just a cosmic accident that God had nothing to do with? Well... The one who's risen from the dead said, don't you know that in the beginning God made them male and female? You may be sitting there today wondering, can I really know God or is it arrogant when people say, I know the Lord? Well, the one who's risen from the dead and exalted said, the day's coming when people will worship God in spirit and truth. We can really know him and worship him. You may wonder, does my life end at death or is there life beyond the grave? Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though we were dead, yet shall shall he live. You may ask, isn't everybody ultimately going to be saved? The one who's resurrected, the one who's now the standard of truth said, Listen, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
The church is a special place because it's a place where the truth is spoken about us. It's a place where the truth is spoken about Jesus. But as we wrap up today, I want you to quickly see one other aspect of this truth. Because this is one of the things that makes the church a really special place. It's a place where lives are changed. And it's because it's a place where the truth is spoken about salvation. If your Bible is still open there, look with me at verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, some of you have friends and loved ones who don't know Christ yet. And I know from talking to you that you yearn for their salvation. You've pleaded with God to do something, and you've done the best you know to do to move them toward Christ. Praise God. Bravo. Wonderful. But we always need to understand that when it comes to this miracle of salvation, that God is the prime mover We must all understand that in spite of our best efforts to say the right words, do the right things, be the best witness we can be, we need to understand that ultimately salvation is a work of God. He will honor our efforts, but we need to leave the results to God. And what's happening here is that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was taking this truth that Peter was proclaiming, and he was driving it supernaturally home into the hearts of the people. And notice how they respond. Rather, Peter says in verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, For all whom the Lord our God will call, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And then it says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Isn't that astounding? This first church started with over 3,000 people. Isn't that amazing? But notice, the message of salvation began with a message of repentance. The word in Greek is metanoia. Noia, the word for mind. Meta, change. Repentance begins by changing our mind. We thought we were the center of the universe, or at least we acted like it. Now we change our mind and understand it's not about me, it's about God and His glory. We thought that we were okay with God, but now we realize that we've been separated from God by our sin, and so we change our thinking about that. We thought perhaps that Christianity was a hoax and that nobody rises from the dead, and yet we come to believe that Jesus really was raised from the dead, and he's alive forevermore, so we change our mind about that and on and on. But it's more than just a change of mind, it's a change of behavior. No spouse whose mate has been unfaithful would be satisfied if he or she said, I admit I'm a sinner, I was unfaithful. No. That offended spouse wants to hear, I admit I'm unfaithful. And I declare to you that by God's grace I will not do that again. By God's grace I'm going to change and be a new person. God looks at us and says, it's not just a change of mind, it's 
accompanied by a change of behavior as I work in you from the inside out. And it's a total change of allegiance. I can take you from whatever life you have now and I can make you a new creation in Christ. This church is special because it's full of stories like that. One of the people I've come to respect through the years, largely because of his amazing writing, is a man named Lee Strobel. Let me quickly tell you his story of transformation as we wrap up. Lee Strobel was the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune a number of years ago. He had been trained in law and in journalism, and he put those two together with a searing pen, and he was an incredible writer. Lee Strobel prided himself on not taking anything at face value, but being the ultimate skeptic, even a cynic who questioned everything. He demanded there be at least two proofs, two ironclad references to anything before they published. In fact, he said we had a sign in our newsroom at the Chicago Tribune, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. Maybe she's lying. Do you have any proof of that? What is the evidence of that? And he took that same skeptical mindset when it, into spiritual matters. Lee Strobel says that at that time in my life, you need to understand one thing. I lived for self. My ultimate goal was my own happiness at any cost. To be honest, I was drunken, profane, angry. I was a person who was obnoxious. I was incredibly immoral and very destructive. He said, one day, just I had this inner rage. I... One day, uh, my toddler, Allison, and my wife were in the living room, and, and just in a rage, I just reared back and kicked a hole in the wall in our living room, just in my anger. He said, the ugliest truth about me is that my own daughter was so afraid of my anger that when I would come in the door, she would hear me come in, she would take her toys and move them into her bedroom and she would close the door because she didn't know if she'd have a drunken daddy coming in or a raging dad that was going to be yelling at them and screaming at them and kicking holes in the wall. He said, that's the ugly truth about me. But he said, then the worst possible thing happened. My wife went to a Bible study with some other women and she became a follower of Jesus. I couldn't believe it. And I immediately thought of divorce. I, thought, I didn't sign up for it, this. I don't want anything to do with this. I figured she'd become a holy roller and spend all of her time down at some mission at a soup kitchen serving the poor or something. I didn't want anything to do with that. But before I could divorce her, I noticed her character began to change. She was an agnostic before, similar to me. We were kind of the same, but her, she was now becoming a better mom and a better wife and a better friend. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And one day she asked me, Lee, why don't you just go to church with me today? He thought, sure I will. I'm going to go and I'm going to get you out of this cult that you've become a part of. He said, I went to that church called Willow Creek Community Church. And there was a young guy named Bill Heibel speaking a message. And he said it was called basic Christianity. I couldn't believe it. He blew up all my misconceptions about Christianity. He said, I walked out of there that day with two things for sure. I knew I was still an atheist. I did not believe in God. And number two, I went out thinking this. If this stuff is true, 
This has huge implications for my life. But I had to check it out. I don't believe anything. I don't take anything at face value. He said, I spent the next two years taking all of my legal finesse I'd learned, all of my journalism skills, and I wanted to check out and see if Christianity was really true. And at the end of a two-year process, I knelt in my own bedroom one day, said, God, you are who you say you are. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead. He said, I gave my life to Christ and asked him to forgive me of all of my sins. I began to pour out years of immorality that would curl your hair. So I got up off my knees, went into the kitchen where my wife was, and I said, it's true. Jesus is alive. He died for our sins. I've repented. I've given my life to him. And she gave him a huge hug and said, you hard-hearted son of a... Baptist. I've been telling you for two years this was true. Duh. God began to change both of their lives as they began to do the Christian journey together. Now, I don't know where you are today in your own journey, but I want to tell you this. We serve a God of truth who specializes in changing lives. Jesus himself, the one who's risen, the one who's exalted, said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's what he offers to you today. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me right now and let's talk to this risen Savior, this risen one. Let's talk to the one who can change our lives from the inside out. And I want to ask you in these moments just to give your life to him. Whoever you are, wherever you are on this journey, if you're exploring and wondering, maybe you're skeptical like Lee Strobel, I'm going to ask you in these moments just to give your life to Christ. Say, Lord, come in and forgive me of my sin. Just like you did for Lee Strobel, begin to change me from the inside out. Just say that to God. Adopt me into your family. Begin to change me from the inside out. Father, I ask that you would seal all of these commitments. The people who who have crossed over the line today of salvation. I ask that in this moment, you would make it so real to them that they would know that there is a God of truth And that makes all the difference. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.